Are you ready? Hey, everybody. Hey, folks. Hello, everybody. People in the back. Welcome, everybody. Welcome to the inner loop. Welcome, everybody. Welcome to the inner loop. Without further ado. Without further ado. Okay, so without further ado, we're going to get started. We should get started. We're yeah. Rolling. I'm rolling. We're, we're gonna get started. Welcome to the Inner Loop Radio. I'm Rachel Koontz. And I'm Courtney Sexton. Thank you for joining us. If you haven't already, remember to subscribe to our podcast wherever you stream from. And for all of our loyal listeners out there, don't forget to leave us a review telling the world how awesome and inspiring we are. And for any new listeners out there, here on the Inner Loop Radio, we delve into all things creative writing, whether that be inspiration or craft, what makes a great ghost story, or how to construct the perfect sonnet, or just how we all sit down each day in front of an empty page. We play clips of local writers reading their work at our monthly reading series, and we invite a few of those writers to join our discussion. On today's show... We've been talking about setting and place a lot, but what about time as setting? Courtney, thoughts? Mm -hmm. How does one... (laughs) (laughs) So this topic, I feel it can be approached from a lot of different directions. You could talk about historical fiction. You could talk about time as setting, time as character, how one captures the essence of an era. Well, and there's also, you know, I was, it's, this is timely for me. <laughs> as, as you all know I love the puns. Um, I was having a conversation with a gentleman who I am uh, working with on his writing. Um, and we've been doing various exercises and things. And we were, mm. we were talking about a piece that he'd been working on uh, for me or at my request. <laughs> <laughs> at my gentle nudging. Um and uh, one of the things that really stood out to me was, hey, this is one of those instances where um, you can really use time to control the feelings that the reader is having throughout mm-hmm. it, to pace it. Mm-hmm. And obviously pacing is about timing. Um, but the exercise had to do with it, and I think many of us have probably done it before, write a recipe. Mm-hmm. Um, but it was a loose form of it. So a lot rather than, than regular ingredients, there were like random things that were anyway um <laughs> there was that. it it turned out that that the the biggest gap in it was entry so where in the story mm-hmm. do we come into it do we do we yeah um, where do you start where do you start Time-wise. right and so this piece would have been dramatically altered had we entered in at a later point and so I made him rewrite it starting from that point, yada, yada, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but so that's something that I think is like a little thing when we're not talking about eras or, or writing about, you know, trying to place yourself in a time in which you weren't alive or, or memory or something, totally. but like actual using time as a structural Yeah, thing. like how do you pace the story? Yeah. And also I find stories that play with time really interesting. Um, you know, which portions do you use as flashback which right. like which parts do you tell in first person present right and which one you know so it goes back to your point of where do you start the story are you looking back mm-hmm. are you you know are you projecting into the future even like mm-hmm. when i decided to utilize projection in one of my stories it sort of opened all these doors for me because I often write in first person present and Mm -hmm. it can be very limiting, Mm -hmm. but you could use the projective sense to say, you know, what if this happened or, you know, in, you know, one universe, this happened or, you know, one day I'll look back and say these things. Right. And that's like a way of using future um, to drive your story forward. And to kind of pick apart, as you're saying, where and what is the present from what perspective. And that's the other thing, you know, like. We talked about, um, you know, place and space, and but those things aren't inextricable from time either because during, say, some iconic era or something, mm-hmm. it depends where you are, what what perspective you have. So the guns could be blazing somewhere, whereas during this time you were just sitting there drinking your coffee. Mm-hmm. So like, how does that play into it also? And and who do you want to um, 
have as your protagonist or or as the focal point yeah and i when i think about capturing an era i mean the obvious thought is the beat generation you know like kerouac Mm -hmm. and those writers uh ginsburg who but everyone all the reviewers and anybody looking back and even people in the time were like these are the voices Mm -hmm. of the generation and the things that they're writing capture something about the generation in america in america i mean i think they were living in europe part of the time i don't know yeah but it was from an american from an american perspective. perspective yeah 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 um, but it's interesting to think about um, how one does that. Like, for example, in my own writing, you know, I was born in the 80s, so my childhood was in the 90s, and that's turned out to be a very, um, you know, stylistic Right, but we experienced era. it as children. Yes, yes. So. But but still, it, it turns out to be so, it feels so archaic to me now. Yeah. <laughs> Because I write about, you know, when I first experienced the internet and that's like, you know, I have to think about my audience now and how they see that right. from their perspective. And it's, you know, um, I'm, I really am representing an era when I place my stories in my childhood, right. which was in the 90s. And it's very much a 90s childhood. Yeah, and I think you, with that, you think about the speed at which things have changed. And people talk about this all the time. I know, like, you know, in the past 20 years, like, how much has changed, but how rapidly it has mm-hmm. changed. So where there was a little bit more crossover between generations previously, there really is more of a divide here. So you have to be careful when you're trying to mm-hmm. connect with people. What are the reference points that they will understand? Yeah, and you have to compensate in a lot mm-hmm. of ways. There's another story that I wrote about going for a run and getting lost. Yeah, and people are like, what? How could you possibly get lost? (laughs) (laughs) Where's your phone? Exactly. You would never leave the house without your phone, and your phone has a map on it, so you would never get lost. Yeah. But that's what the whole story was based around getting lost. And like, how do you. Now people like do that intentionally, you know? They're like, I'm going to go get lost today. No, for real. It's like a it's no, like a it's like a meditative thing, which I get. Yeah, sure, I get it. It's nice though. I mean, because there is something like it was a transformative experience for me yeah. getting lost in this moment. I mean, not a positive one. It was happened to be a negative one in this case, but still, it was an experience. And you know, it's hard to it's not hard, but you have to look at it from a different perspective now and think about how can I bring someone into the place where I was if they've if they never have no experienced experience of that, yeah, being lost and not having anywhere to turn. Not just, like, being lost by choice. Yeah, so how do you set that up? Like, if you do want to try to articulate that, how much background do you have to give (laughs) to be like, by the way, this was in the day before the internet. Can you imagine a time before the internet? Let me tell you what it was like. And then let me explain this thing of getting lost. Like, and I know, like, okay, that's... Well, I think, like, for the in this instance, it would be a lot easier than that. I could just say I, you know, left my phone at home. Right, you could use a device. my phone ran out of batteries. I could just sort of work that in. Oh, at this moment, my phone died. Interesting. But that wouldn't be true to the time no it wouldn't be true i'd have to make that part up right (laughs) no i know but like even yeah yeah so hmm. Hmm. but no speaking of um like child's childhood memories turning out to turning out to be sort of a representation of the time Mm -hmm. i want to turn to one of our authors who read with us kathy curto yeah she's an essayist um and memoirist and she just came out with her book that's all about her jersey childhood jersey girlhood um, she and, and i she and i really <laughs> heart speak on this one <laughs> courtney's a jersey girl if you guys don't know um but she does a great job of capturing an era an era for sure like all of her stories are very but also representative of, of the era and of of a place also <laughs> definitely of a place like you said they can be inextric- inextricable yes and- yeah yeah yeah. yeah let's have a listen <laughs> this is called black road moving here's what happened tonight my mother was making what she sometimes calls a very sharp left but most of the time calls a bitch of a left out of the suds and duds parking lot and onto hooper avenue and i fell out of the car I saw the black road moving. My side scraped the street, and my undershirt ripped a little. I think I saw a tasty cake wrapper on the road, but I'm not sure because the second after it happened, my mother put the car in park, yanked me back inside, and then leaned all the way over and slammed the door shut. I said, sorry, 
Because how many times does she have to tell me not to lean on the door like that, for Christ's sakes? Then she put the car back in drive, handed me her handkerchief, and took me to Mel's jewelry shop to get my ears pierced. That was Kathy Curto reading from her book, Not for Nothing, Glimpses into a Jersey Girlhood, recently released by Bordighera Press. Uh, and Kathy will actually be returning to read at the Interloop this fall. She's doing uh, some talks this summer. So if you're in the Jersey, New York area, <laughs> look it up. Look it up. Um, so, yeah, I mean, with that, I remember when car doors could open well right so many things about that story evokes so much from the time like no car seats right. car seats were oh not God, a thing no. back then seatbelts weren't a thing seatbelts were barely a thing this is early late 70s early 80s by yeah, the way for, 70s, for, yeah. for yeah. um and the binge seats cars yeah. with the binge seats yeah, the because she reaches all yeah, the way yeah. over and like closes the door yeah, yeah. um and just like subtle things like the tasty cake uh-huh. wrapper and stuff like uh-huh. i just love the way she subtly like builds this yeah. world and it's she does it without you realizing it yeah but you've end up being like this was like a time yeah and i think what's really cool about her stories in particular is you don't necessarily and this is right the ultimate goal you don't have to have been alive then to right. to get something exactly. out of it so you know how it, it's in the tone it's in it's in the <laughs> the her personification of her mother like through herself which is cool because she said you know <laughs> yeah, anyway <laughs> i know the way she phrased that is yeah, so yeah, brilliant yeah. <laughs> Because what was I doing anyway? You know, and it's like the, <laughs> yeah. the regurgitation of the parents' words through your yes, own voice, but exactly. through your own childhood voice. Like, that's so many <laughs> so things many removed. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, very but cool. Actually, speaking of that, um, the other clip I wanted to play was um, from May, uh, Faye Moskowitz. And the best, the thing that I really loved about this clip is that she captures two eras at once. Yes. Because she's contrasting them. Yes. So she's got her era and then her grandmother's era. Yes. And you just feel both of them so intensely at the same time. Yeah, Faye is, is awesome. So let's listen to that. Bobby and I walked downtown to the dime store. To me, she is an enormous woman who swings her great hip against my side with each stride. Three long skips cannot match one of her giant steps. Like hungry jaws, her thick fingers swallow my small hand. I am a balloon bouncing at the end of a taut string. I wiggle my fingers desperately. My grandmother will not give me back my hand. Why does she hang on to me so tightly? Am I to guard her from the goyim? Or is she protecting me from the unfamiliar terrors of my little Michigan town? We walk under canopies of elms, sunshades of horse chestnut, maple, and oak, past houses with gabled windows and turrets like birthday hats. A squirrel's fortune of nuts rains down with every wind breath and rolls beneath our feet. Bobby looks neither to the left nor to the right. I glance up at her face. Her mouth is caved in like the little dried apple dolls at the Jackson County Fair. She has left her smile in a water glass on the table next to her bed. Her black wig is slightly tipsy. I can see her gray hair peeking out around it. She does not look like the neat, proper grandmothers of my friends who are not Jewish. I say, Bobby, please talk to me in English. This is America. As we get closer to the stores, we begin to see other people. The women wear flowered silk dresses and soft, stylish hats. Their tiny shoes have pointed toes and little curving heels. My grandmother has an apron over her dress. I wish she would take off her apron and put it in the black shopping bag she carries instead of a purse. We walk into Kresge's five and ten, five and ten. Bobby says loudly, where is the thread? I pretend I do not understand. 
I say, Bobby, please speak English. I hope no one has heard her. And finally, I manage to pry my hand loose. I watch her warily at the sewing counter. She points to a spool of white thread and asks, what costs? The sales girl scratches her head with the point of her pencil. 10 cents. Bobby shakes her head. Too much. I give a nickel. I call her grandma. I say, grandma, the thread costs 10 cents. Give the girl a dime. I pull my grandmother out of the store. She is trying to say something to me in Jewish, but I have put my hands over my burning ears. Bobby clutches my hand again in hers. We turn toward home, and then she stops at a curb. She stands with one foot on the sidewalk and the other on the street. She looks straight ahead. Her feet are wide apart. Her wide skirts come down almost to the tops of her heavy shoes. I do not believe what I see. My grandmother is going to the bathroom in the middle of the street in broad daylight. I put my head down and walk away from her. Maybe if I cannot see anyone, they will not see me. I have tears in my eyes. I say to my grandmother in Jewish, this is America, Bubby. We do not do that in America. <laughs> that was Faye Moskowitz reading from her book entitled A Leak in the Heart. Faye is a professor of creative writing at Georgetown University. And what's really interesting on our theme about that is, and sorry Faye, um, <laughs> at the time that she was reading, she was, I'm pretty sure, older than her grandmother in the story mm -hmm. was. So that was really interesting. interesting. I wonder what her perspective on that would have been. Yeah. You know, to chat with her about. But I loved, I loved the way that she was able to capture the era. Mm -hmm. One, I mean, one aspect was the fashion aspect. Having her describe what people were sure. wearing was very informative. And then you know, obviously the price of thread being five, like mm -hmm. 10 cents. Um, but the most interesting part that I found was that she was able to describe a time and a place by describing the thing that didn't fit in. Right. And, and the relationship, right? Because that's how it was very much about the Im immigrant experience right. at that time. And so that's how we're grounded in it because there's such a disconnect between the new generation here that is like, we are American, let's be American. Mm -hmm. And then the literally the old country, like, right transition right and this was in a time when i think yeah it was still a new thing mm -hmm. and so it wasn't there wasn't this like identity with being an american yet right but yeah just the description of her grandmother sort of sticking out like mm -hmm. a sore thumb and it just gave such vivid imagery of a culture clash right and so it painted a picture of two different cultures at the same time without with very little effort feeling and also of a general childhood, you know, that mm -hmm. time that oh, you go yes, through where you're embarrassed by your parents and everything they do, <laughs> you know, so it's like all of these things rolled into one and really like heightened because of the situation. Yeah. And yeah, it's interesting you point that out because it always feels like with Kathy's writing and Faye's writing. Yeah, it feels so much. It feels so heavier. universal yes, at yes. the same time as being super specific. That's true which is what you're going for. That's the magic. Right. Well, because I think, yeah, we can all look back and laugh at like, oh my God, why did I react so like yeah. insanely to that? <laughs> like that was not a big deal. All I cared about was like, <laughs> yeah. is, can anybody see me? Right. <laughs> it's like, no, no one is looking at you. <laughs> so the other aspect of, of time and writing is sort of the historical perspective. Right. So historical fiction, even historical non nonfiction, talking about history, mm -hmm. um, you know, straightforwardly just being like, here's a time. Yeah, and I'm recording let's where talk we are about now. It. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, so one of our interloopers, uh, Tanya Pepperney, um, 
did a nonfiction piece at our residency. That's right. She was um, in, I think, the second our second cohort of summer residency programs out of the the Woodlawn and Pope Leahy House and Arcadia Center in 2017. Yes, she was there. Yeah. Um, 1892. Yeah, second. Yep. Um, <laughs> I'm counting in my head. Um, and that place lends itself to writing about different times for sure because there's a confluence of so so much mm-hmm. history at that one site. I mean, and we're from talking so many different perspectives. Exactly. Yeah. So um, Tanya definitely picked an interesting perspective to for to, sure. Yeah. To think about. Let's take a listen. Decisions around who gets to name a place or thing, how its story is told or labeled, whose history is worth elevating or preserving, these things are often an exercise in reinforcing white dominance and patriarchy. This has always been true, and yet it's become sharper to me recently. A friend told me about her visit to the Great Dismal Swamp, an area straddling Virginia and North Carolina, William Byrd, a British colonist, is credited for giving the site its name in 1728. He was, among other things, a plantation owner and cruel slave master who recorded diary entries about making young slaves, quote, drink a pint of piss for wetting the bed. When Byrd worked as a commissioner tasked with drawing the state lines between North Carolina and Virginia, he recorded these notes about the swamp, quote, never was that rum that cordial of life found more necessary than it was in this dirty place. With its miles upon miles of bogs and dense population of flies, mosquitoes, snakes, and prickly vines, subsequent white settlers and even contemporary white archaeologists described it as, quote, impenetrable. But for nearly 200 years, this dirty place, this inhospitable swamp, was actually a sanctuary. Starting as early as 1660, if not earlier, the swamp was home to Native Americans seeking refuge from encroaching Europeans. Later, generations of escaped slaves, also known as Maroons, built complex communities in these parts. By 1728 or so, a group of slaves from Georgia evaded capture for four years by fleeing into the swamp. Penetrating deep past the marshy edges, slaves found small islands and lived on these, subsisting on the materials around them for food and shelter. Though isolated, possibly hundreds or more people lived free and self-sufficient lives as late as the mid-1800s. So when, in the mid-1700s, William Byrd described the site as, quote, a miserable morass where nothing can inhabit, there may very well have been brown-skinned refugees eavesdropping on his misguided proclamation. With the Dismal Swamp Act of 1974, the swamp came under the official purview of the U.S. federal government. Bird's chosen name was codified by the National Park Service, and the sentiment of a white settler was committed to perpetuity as the Great Dismal Swamp. That was Tanya Pepperney reading an excerpt from an essay she wrote at the Inner Loop Woodlawn Residency in 2017. So that was an interesting way to approach history mm-hmm. and how, I mean, who Tanya are the record keepers? Exactly. She talks directly about. Mm-hmm the different like how you can record history mm-hmm. and there's always a slant right and in that she tells a story too like it's cool exactly, she's able yeah. to, to again pull those layers out um and i think it, it's especially relevant to now and to her work and and um but the that that idea of, of who are the record keepers i think is really important mm-hmm. to think about in in all of our writing right now exactly it's a good reminder yeah. that you're seeing it through your own lens and right. how does that play a part in your writing and even in the things that are influencing us who has been telling us these stories and for how long mm-hmm. and from where and when and are they the ones that we should be basing our stories off of right. you know even if we want to get into it like the canon like okay well like mm-hmm. who decided these were mm-hmm. the, the things of that time and search yeah yeah, I don't want to. I <laughs> we just don't di- want to go down dive, that rabbit hole. We can really dive deep on that, <laughs> but we <laughs> we won't. We'll spare you all. We'll spare you. Um, speaking of a voice of a time and a place, uh, we will hear from a poet who has been a leader in the literary community here in Washington D.C. for over forty years, uh, and he certainly has a thing or two to say about capturing mm-hmm. history. Stay tuned. Thank you.
Gather. Gather. Gather, please. Um, you can gather in. Gather round, gather round for the second half. And we're gonna get started. We're gonna get started. We'll get started. We're officially getting started. Not teasing you this time. Is Eric Dolphy coming or going? It's 12.08 and Frank O'Hara is late for lunch. He often gets lost outside New York. I'm in Starbucks near DuPont Circle, sitting with Billy Strayhorn. Our conversation turns to Pittsburgh, and for a moment, I want to be August Wilson or Roberto Clemente. Billy asked to see my Washington Post. He wants to know what the police are doing these days. Frank arrives and he looks like Mona Lisa with a smile. Maybe it's the danger that comes with museum work. Eric Dolphy is eating next door. He whispers at times, Frank can be as difficult as Asbury. Have they ever met? Imagine all, imagine the New York poets moving to New Jersey and never taking the Amtrak to DC. Billy hands the newspaper back. It's 12.30, and everyone is in a sentimental mood. We rise and go next door. Dolphy looks up from his plate and says, the food sucks, but it's better than the music people are playing these days. He laughs and tells Frank to keep his day job. Billy tries to be as gracious as Duke. He nods at Dolphy, and the two of them walk outside for a smoke. I think of Dolphy's Out to Lunch album. The clock tells me, this man is never coming back. That was Ethelbert Miller reading from his poetry collection, If God Invented Baseball, at an Interloop event. Ethelbert joins us now on the show to talk about time and history in writing. Ethelbert is a poet, teacher, and literary activist here in Washington, D.C. He is the author of several collections of poetry and two memoirs, the editor of Poet Lore magazine, and host of the WPFW radio show, On the Margin. Welcome, Ethelbert. We're so excited to have oh, thanks you. Thanks for inviting me. So let's dive right in. Um, what do you think it means to capture a moment in history? Well, you know, when you talk about capturing a moment in history, I think of a term that was introduced to me by um, the poet Mary Baraka, uh, mm -hmm. the motion of history, mm -hmm. you know, where you spend the time um, thinking about how things are, are flowing. Um, you know, we talk sometimes about history repeating itself. Mm -hmm. But time is something which I feel is, is very man-made. It's, it's sort of something that we project onto um, our, our lives, sort of put things in a way that we can organize it and, and understand it better. Uh, it's sort of like taking a photograph where we freeze time for that particular moment. Mm -hmm. But we know for those of us who are living <laughs> that it isn't that way, that every day is different. Okay. Um, mm -hmm. Baraka also introduced a term that was resonated with me talking about the changing same things change but they remain the same mm -hmm. in that case he was talking about african-american music mm -hmm. where you could be a musician you're drawing upon the past you're trying to move the music forward into the future but sometimes it looks like it's the changing same so how in writing do we use time like i i'm just thinking about um how we use place a lot mm -hmm. in writing um to create setting and i'm just wondering how we can do the same for time well i'll look at my my last collection um if god invented baseball time plays a key role in there because if you look at what's happening within baseball today many people are talking about like speeding up the game mm -hmm. you know baseball's too slow so in terms of sports, uh, here is a, a, a ritual that you become very conscious of time. You know, mm -hmm. uh, how many pitches, how many innings, okay? Mm -hmm. uh, it's also a, a, a game in which I mentioned that it, it starts and ends at home. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, when we look at home plate, you know, this is the thing that, you know, the whole game operates for you return to this point. Now, what does it mean when you leave home? When you leave home, you know, there's a certain amount of time that you've been away from home. Mm -hmm. A lot of things can happen. Um, the one thing that I find very insightful in terms of literature and how it applies to social movement is Martin Luther King talking about Rip Van Winkle. Mm -hmm. And he says it's not that Rip Van Winkle slept through all these years, you know, because when he goes to sleep, King George is on the tab, and when he wakes up, it's George Washington. Mm -hmm. But King emphasizes the fact that the time that passed was one of a revolution. Okay, um, that's something that I think can be very frightening in terms of, you know, we 
have this thing where we predict time, but then the revolution comes where it accelerates it. Mm-hmm. And consequently, what happens, individuals can lose their identity because things are passing so fast. You know, what's this revolution? How come, you know, things like Jimi Hendrix, if six turned out to be nine, everything gets flipped mm-hmm. and there's a disorientation and perhaps even a loss of identity. Hmm. When you deal with a loss of identity, many times people want to reclaim their identity and they will be very violent in terms of trying to reclaim by any means necessary. You see that happening today, you know, where you look up. If I'm a white male and all this diversity and and emphasis on color, it disrupts my sense of time. Like, okay, I want to go back to the 1950s where things were slow and I Mm -hmm. knew exactly, you know, um, where the borders were and where the boundaries were. But now everything seems to be in flux. You know, people are coming across borders and, you know, they're speaking a different language, which is also tied with time. Sometimes languages are fast Mm -hmm. and your language is slow. So the whole timing is off. And just like back in baseball, all of a sudden what happens is that a pitcher adjusts the speed of a ball and all of a sudden you're swinging and missing mm-hmm. your way out front or the ball's past you. Mm-hmm. And for some of us, that's what's happening in our lives right now. Life is passing us by in such a way that it's frightening. Do you think that um, to to write through time is a, is a way to reclaim it or to slow down and, and regain your perspective on where you are? I think what happens is that you have to look at writers and the various groups that they may belong to. Like right now, for example, you have a Me Too movement. Mm-hmm. So women are very much aware of how much time they, say, spent in the house, how much time they might have spent in, a, in a, an abusive relationship, and, and want to change that. Mm-hmm. Or what happens, they look at, at what's happening politically, and they can see that change, a change where they say, wow, my grandmother would never believe this. Mm-hmm. And so what happens when you can see that type of change right in front of you in your lifetime, mm-hmm. all possibilities open up. Okay. Yeah, it's interesting that you you brought up the the grandmother's perspective on what would what what her perspective would be on what's happening now because I was wondering how one conveys what's at stake mm-hmm. in the moment to people in the future when they may t- be taking for granted the things that they have and they may not know how do you capture a moment in history without making it inaccessible mm-hmm. to well, people in the future. Well, I think what happens now, um, to some extent, we're, we're living in the future, uh, and we've never seen this happening before. You know, the amount of information that we have access to right now, um, if we were to go back in time, we, w- we would say, well, it would take me a long time to access that. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, the same way if you're a scholar, the amount of time it would take you to research something now, it's just completely changed. Now with that, yeah. it changes our whole concept of, of what we think of in terms of past, present, and future. Um, if you look at what's happening re- in terms of religion, you know, you see this sort of increase in Buddhism where people sort of like, you know, ex- accept that there's this oneness, that there's this mindfulness where everything takes place, it, like it stops. You saw this, for example, in um, the classic film, The Matrix, where at the end, Neil says, well, will I be able to dodge bullets? And, you know, and after a while he says, you'll reach a point where bullets don't even matter, right? And, 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 and it is that type of thing where that sort of, you know, um, goal in terms of reaching a point where everything stops, Mm. And there isn't any time, which is a very spiritual level. It's, it's, you know, it's, it's something that if you can experience it once in your life, then you experience it. I remember a friend of mine who was a political prisoner in, I think, Argentina. And we were riding in his car. I looked over to him. I said, Doug, I got to ask you a question. I just can't believe that you had a bag over your head for like six months. Mm. And he said, Ethelbert, one day... Four months, five months. Yeah. After a while, mm-hmm. it just you know you just you just walk around with a bag in your head, you know, and and the sense of time mm-hmm. and sense totally change. It's funny. The only time I experienced that it's gonna be weird, but <laughs> <laughs> is when I was in labor. I time didn't mean anything. Like people ask me, how long were you in labor? How long were you pushing? I'm like, I have no idea. Yeah. And, you know, I have to ask my partner, how long was I in labor? How long was I pushing? Because time was not a real thing. And I remember there was one moment where I was in the shower and my partner was holding the nozzle over me. And he, like, let his hand down for a second. And I was like, water. (laughs) (laughs) And he and the doula, like, laughed at me. But I, you know, to me, it felt like only a few seconds had passed. But he had been holding it for, like, an hour. (laughs) And see, somebody would say, you know, that experience that you have as a woman is something that a a man couldn't even comprehend. Mm -hmm. You know, and sometimes what happens if you have things where, you know, pain or extra shock or things like that, it it, it sort of numbs you to time. Mm Mm-hmm. 
right? The other senses really are taking over. Um, and I think that's a big part of the creative process almost. Mm-hmm. You know, when I think about the pieces that I've written that I really feel good about, I don't know where they came from or when or for how long or mm-hmm. what I spent on the them. The flow, yeah. people call it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You get in the flow. And I don't think it's as extreme, but there's definitely this kind of like, just a, I can't even, I don't even have a word. I don't even have a word for like an extra sensory kind of sure. thing that goes on. But well, yeah. I would love to hear some yeah. examples of, of this in baseball. Well, I'll, I'll read a poem um, that a friend of mine um, loaned her book to her father and she sent me a recording of her father uh, reading this poem and, and mm-hmm. I'll just read it mm-hmm. and then I'll, I'll talk about the the recording that she sent to me mm-hmm. old time is day the workers arrived today bringing tools to change my home place my place one day will no longer be safe this is what aging does to the body when things fail and the walls of youth become Berlin after the Cold War. Old age is coldness, bones reduced to everything that is fragile. How we break is how we suffer, is how we die, is how we dream backwards. The workers install railings and handlebars prevent my falling, as if falling in love was still possible. (laughs) I loved the Yankees when I was young, (laughs) when I thought I could be a pitcher Yes, I wanted my name to be called on Old Timer's Day after all my mistakes and errors. Call my name, God, after Jim Coates, Art Dittmar, Ryan Dern, Whitey Ford, Darn Lawson, Duke Moss, Bobby Shands, Ralph Terry, Bob Turley, Louis Arroyo, and tall Steve Hamilton. <laughs> Call my name, God, when I walk slowly from the dugout to wave at the crowd, tip my hat, and call it a day. Now, I, I read that poem <laughs> when my friend Wendy sent me... Um, recording of her father reading it it was very moving you know because as he read the poem and he got to the list of the baseball Mm -hmm. players he was remembering them Mm -hmm. and so what he does is so (laughs) funny he goes Jim Coates Art Dittmar Ryan Dern why'd he for Duke Moss does this Duke Moss right and and what what and what doesn't and then what happened he reaches the end and he looks at the book says, I, I like this. What's not captured mm. is what my friend Wendy said, is how he broke down and cried afterwards. Mm. And I felt that what happened is that in remembering, mm-hmm. remembering, it was a sense of sadness, a sense of one's mortality. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love that the way time, like time is working in that poem mm-hmm. on so many levels. I definitely felt a sense of mortality, mm-hmm. um, but also like, you know, moments at the same time as like decades you know I'll give you this short poem to show you another thing in terms of time um, and this is called Blue Freedom so I'll, 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 I'll read this and then in some of the questions you're asking you know in this program are ones I think operate here in mm-hmm. a different way this is called Blue Freedom they say Mr. Lincoln this afternoon took off his big hat and pulled our freedom from it The great man Douglas believes we will be citizens one day and even get to vote. Last night, a man named Edison came to me in a dream. His face was filled with light. He promised to invent the phonograph so I could listen to Bessie Smith. Mm -hmm. I don't know who that is, but every day I rise with a strange music in my head. I never felt so blue. Mm -hmm. I take individuals that we know, Lincoln, Douglas, Mm -hmm. Edison, and there's a playoff in here, um, you know, where all of a sudden this day, Edison comes through in a dream <laughs> and his face filled with light, so you get that thing. Mm-hmm. But then, you know, is we always associate Edison with the light bulb, but he also created the phonograph. Mm-hmm. And so I'm talking about this whole thing. He promised to invent the phonograph so, he could, so I could listen to Bessie Smith, you know, no, you know, the whole thing of no one wanted to be in the dark singing the blues. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's, it's taking history, it's taking time and, and sort of um, playing around with it and moving, ar- mm-hmm. moving it around. You know, the possibility of, of a poem like this I could never have written if it hadn't been for the poetry of James Tate. You know, there was something surreal and 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 and, and strange in some of his work. Mm-hmm. And when I first heard him read, um, must have been in Vermont, mm-hmm. um, his work just changed my own. I said, you know, I like the possibility of, of taking time and individual time and moving them around mm-hmm. and creating something that's surreal. Hmm. Well, and there's a this layering effect too, right? Wherein 
we're ahead of all of the time that is happening that you're exploring in this poem. So we already know what is to come and, and, and what hap- what the stories of these people are, but then looking at them uh, in relation and aside, ad- adjacent to one another. Or go, or go back, or go back and, and change it. You know, right. like I, I talk about, you know, would, would Frederick Douglass be as popular if he mm-hmm. had a cornrow like Stevie Wonder? <laughs> <laughs> You know, and, and, and you know, so for, revisionist history. Sure, sure. <laughs> you know, because what happened, you know, here we are in Washington, and, and we know that when we talk about Frederick Douglass being the line of Anacostia, is because of his hair. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, you know, you change that to cornrows. <laughs> you, know, you know, somebody would say, you see, you know, he's actually, those chain, those, those cornrows remind me of chains. <laughs> so, in closing, do you have any advice for writers in this time? Oh, sure. You know, going back to sports. If you want to, if you are a writer and you don't approach your craft like Steve Curry on the Golden State Warriors, see, Michael Jordan could just dunk. <laughs> but what happened when you see what Steph Curry is doing mm-hmm. and then you see that these are not lucky shots, this is practice. This, this, mm-hmm. so, and you might recall, maybe like three years, three or four years ago, people began to look at Steph Curry as a cyborg Curry, like he was a cyborg. And if you go back, and listen and watch games that were in the Bay Area, when he missed a shot, they was like, what? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, if we take that discipline as writers, mm-hmm. okay, perfecting that, finding that right word, it, put it in the hoop, writing that perfect sentence mm-hmm. and, and getting it right, doing that sort of revision, you know, and, and Whitman is a good example of that, mm-hmm. that you try to perfect your game, you perfect, it might be one poem you keep writing over and over and over again. That type of work habits is what we've gotten away from. Mm-hmm. We have sped things up, mm-hmm. we want the quick response, and Produced. so what happens, right, we don't, we don't even want to read the long poem. Right, yeah. We don't want to read the long essay, <laughs> yeah. okay? You know, that's boring. And And who said, hard work study was boring who who came up with that mm-hmm. you know see my thing about education and stuff is that everybody wants to make it into entertainment and enjoyable right. you know and and, and 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 you know that's not what it's about you know it's it's hard work the and this right now for us as writers, we have to be in the forefront we have to be the guardians of the language mm-hmm. okay the language you know, it's being fractured, it's being destroyed. And, and so as poets, we have, to, we have to push back on that. And see, that's the other thing. And this is my age, I'll be 70 next year. I can't go with snaps, okay? And so I have to tell people, usually if I go out, I'm a shirt and tie poet, okay? Mm-hmm. And I usually have to say, after my reading, I want Q&A. Why? So that you don't leave here thinking it was a performance. Mm-hmm. Okay, and so what happens? I always say, okay, I'm here to use work to open up doors to have dialogue. dialogue mm-hmm. You know, so I'll go out to some place like um, Salt Lake City and and read a poem about homosexuality because what happens? I'm saying I don't want people throwing blo- you know rocks at each other in the street. Come to a reading, mm-hmm. let read a poem, uh, and have a discussion about, about it. it. Okay, if I'm just snapping my fingers and nodding my head. You know, and thinking it's a good thing clapping. To me, that's the, I, 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 that's not what I'm there for. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. and so the whole thing. Sometimes I go somewhere I don't even read a poem. <laughs> <You know? laughs> it's about the word. Well, thank you so oh, much. Oh, thank for you, being and, awesome. and I hope that you guys will continue the good work that you're doing. Thank, thank you. you. It's so good to have you. Thank you for the invitation. to a special segment we like to call Stellar Heller. Is that what we're calling it? Wait, what are we calling it? No. Slam Bam Thank You Ma'am. Slam Bam Thank You Ma'am. Or Slam Against the Wall. Slam or it all around and no, slam it down. Slam your body down. Anyway, um, for this segment, we invite our resident improv slam poet, Kate Heller, to the show. Welcome, Kate. Hey. Hey. <laughs> <laughs> now you may be asking yourself, <laughs> What the hell is an improv slam poet? <laughs> well, <laughs> basically, same. I have the same question. Kate's like, I'm waiting for this. Uh, we give, <laughs> we're going to give Kate a topic, any old topic, and she improvises a slam poem on the spot. 
Yes. It works like this in bars. Now it's going to work like this in the booth. I know, in a booth. We're going to see. We're going to see. Now that I'm not socially. But the juiced. hilarious thing is that they're always really good. They're actually good. Have yeah, another's pressure. Yeah. Ooh. Pressure's good, though. It can be. It can be. There's two versions. You're going to work with it. Under pressure. <laughs> You're helping? <laughs> no, it's going to be great. It's going to be great. Uh, but uh, yeah, I can confirm I haven't heard any of these. Uh, topics. topics. We're going to throw some random topics at her. I'm but it's excited. it's on theme because the show is about time capturing an era. That's perfect. So we're going to throw some random eras or historical moments at you. And then boom. Poem. Slam it out. Are you ready? <laughs> She's, <laughs> She's so ready. She's smiling very bigly. <laughs> She's like, I'm as ready as I'll ever be. Yeah. Okay. Topic number one. Okay. The grunge music era. Oh my god, the grunge music era. I'll never have enough safety pins. <laughs> I started shoplifting when I was 13. First, just Bonnie Bell, chapsticks, watermelon, peach, tangerine. But then that wasn't enough for me as I got into the scene. <laughs> It started with this guy, you know the type. Dyed hair, lip ring, moody stare, rasping voice, and I felt like I didn't have a choice. I needed to be around him, of him, a part of his world, and that meant safety pins. <laughs> they were the only safety that I was going to have, and I was here for it, so I went down the street to my local Walgreens, shifty-eyed, sweaty palms. For some reason, even though it was a smaller thing, it was a bigger thing to me. And that night, I cut up one of my brother's shirts, stitched it back together with my loot, <laughs> and I was ready to get hurt. <laughs> we also didn't talk about how long these <laughs> That's no, okay. However, Just feel, feel it. it feel it. Feel okay, it. feel it. Feel it. Perfect. <laughs> You I know, I still the... have safety pin earrings that like, yeah. go through years. Yeah, I have a shirt that has a safety pin pattern that I love, and mm. it was used, so one of the buttons was missing, and it has a safety pin replacing the button. It's my favorite little. Dude, I... flannels were my life in fifth grade and They're sixth still grade. my life. <laughs> you know, also, like you eating like the, the button. Bottle tabs too. Like we would make like yes. key rings and shit out of like mm -hmm. and collect all of our like tabs, soda can, soda tabs. can tabs. <laughs> I don't know, it was just metal yeah. everywhere. Metal. metal. <laughs> Yes. Brilliance. That's great. Courtney. <clears throat> Recess. Recess. Ooh, that's a good one. Bring. <laughs> Bring. And we're off. Off to the races. Feet flying. Rubber on rubber. Ready for recess. The handballs on the wall. The tether balls going around. But I'm on the slide flying free, pretending to be a pirate like only I know to be. Danny's there, but he can't catch me. He's the shark today. Tomorrow we'll switch. It's only fair. The worst days are the days that you get benched. Just like now. Metaphor. <laughs> One time, Cecile was benched for three whole days. We would run around her, sometimes taunting, sometimes helping, not quite knowing what to do. Because all we wanted to do was play, but we also knew that benching was serious. And Miss Mareda was going to be over there with her thick horn-rimmed glasses, sparkly pink, so she seemed less intimidating. But that pink was a lie. <laughs> and you knew that the second you stopped to tie your shoe and try something, she was going to come for you. So kathunk, kathunk, back to handball it was. Sorry, Cecilia. <laughs> it's recess time. And we got to go. <laughs> Oh, oh, I have one. I have one. I have one. I have okay. one. I have one. All right, okay. we're going to end on this one. Oh, no. Okay. okay. Is it spring, spring break? Spring no! break! <laughs> Sorry. Did you ever have a MySpace page? No. You never had a MySpace page? Or a live channel. I wasn't. What? I was just like a fucking. I, excuse me. I was just like. <laughs> Um, <laughs> she just excused herself to you all through the microphone. Yeah, sorry. She, she looked at you and everything. Yeah. Sorry, guys. Um, I was just a, la um, a laggard. I was an internet laggard. Like, oh, I yeah. missed a birthday party because my friend only sent the invitation through email. 
and yeah. I like didn't do email yet in ninth grade or whatever it was. Yeah. So how about just the birth of social media and then whatever that means? Oh god, to social media. Yes. Social media. Social media. This is, this is rife with like drama, oh god, and fake drama. So <laughs> I like throwing up in my mouth. Memes, a bit. memes media. and shit. <laughs> I'm an old millennial. <laughs> I don't know if you all understand what that... I'm going to do like big voice for this one. I, like it it. Yeah. I don't know if you all understand what that means or implies. An old millennial <laughs> is already tired of your internet <laughs> bullshit. But an old millennial is still racing to keep up. We can't fully wash our hands and put down the torch, nor do we understand how to hold it caught in between a social media bind. What is social about social media? For me, it brings up tricklings of isolation, sharp shrapnel of feeling alone, thick mucus of wanting more. <laughs> Of unfinished texts, of parties not attended, of Instagram stories watched on repeat, of events you weren't invited to, a floating ellipse dancing across the screen for minutes, but in your heart for days. I am an old millennial but I still feel young to the world. Bravo. <laughs> Masterpiece. Uh, All right, that was I Kate. I think I read that on Medium. <laughs> Did you? I forgot, I didn't do enough like um, heavy-handed metaphor in the first one, so I had to like bring yeah, yeah, it, I had to bring good. it back for y'all. I was back. like, two storytelling, not an, I was like, I oh like wait, what are the things? Yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, that was a good one. Yeah, I had to go deep like, Deep not like not just improvs. That that was more like satire slam, yeah. right? Like Love there's yeah, like improv yeah. slam, and I know that's my fave. I know your favorite was my satire slam. Kate Heller, everybody. Thanks, Kate. Thanks, y'all. This was really fun. That's our show. Join us next month for our episode on summer residencies. To find out more about us or submit to read at our next event, visit us online at www.theinterlooplit.org. Today's episode was produced by me, Rachel Kuntz. Our theme music is by Andrew Logan, and our technical manager is James Skinner. Thanks again to E. Ethelbert Miller and Kate Heller for joining us on the show. If you liked Kate's poems, <laughs> open your podcast app and hit the five-star button next to our name. <laughs> Tell the world what a rock star she is and how much you love The Inner Loop by leaving a review. And don't forget to subscribe. Subscribe! Subscribe so you never miss an episode. Happy writing! Right on, Litwitz.